Join me in prayer, please. God of grace and love, continue to shape this community by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might serve you well. Amen. Recently, we were invited to listen to a multi-voice sermon. Several people reflecting on the lectionary texts and sharing their respective insights. Today's sermon is also a multi-voice sermon, although the only voice actually speaking will be mine. Over the course of nine years in pastoral ministry, Jeannie and I have unofficially collaborated on many sermons. We test one another's thoughts and flesh out one another's ideas. I pursue theological rabbit trails, she wields the editor's pen. So in that sense, this sermon is brought to you by Matthew and Jeannie Bai. This is also a multi-voice sermon in the sense that every sermon, unless it is purchased and presented as being one's own, is multi-voiced. Nothing in it is original, except the way in which the voices are combined. So you will be hearing from Dorothy Sayers and Judith Rempelschmucker, from Wendell Berry and Ernie Hess, from the works of scholars of the ancient Near East, and from the Ohio and Pennsylvania State Standards for Primary English Education, from the Bi Family Dinner Table, conversations, and from Jeannie's brother, who blogs under the pseudonym Weasley Pilgrim. Ask me later. Two stories. They were just read. One comes from the shadowy depths of the past, from ancient Mesopotamia. One comes from an early Christian hymn and reflects something that has happened within a time frame not too far removed from our own. I do not address the story of Babel to wonder whether it's literal or symbolic. What I do accept is that this story is recorded in scripture to tell us something true and important about the nature of God and the nature of God's creatures. What exactly was the problem with the Tower of Babel? Was it human pride, as much of the Christian tradition would suggest? Was it idolatry? Was it God nervously looking over his shoulder and thinking that humankind was getting just a bit too powerful for comfort? None of these answers seem to fit the text. Yet, the building of the tower is not named as a sin, and the scattering of the peoples is not necessarily a punishment, though it may have felt like one. Research suggests that the function of the ancient Mesopotamian ziggurats, a building with its head in the heavens, was to serve as a stairway for the use of the gods as they traveled from one realm to another. It was built and maintained for the convenience of the gods in a hope that the gods would be attracted by the amenities and the gifts on offer and they would descend to bless the people and receive their worship. If this is correct, then, was the real problem the building of the tower that it was an attempt to tie God down, to attract the attention of the deity to one spot, to make God attainable, to suggest that God had needs that were therefore open to bribery and manipulation? Might the real problem be that 
not that the people were trying to be like God, but rather that people were trying to bring God down to the level of fallen humanity, to remake God in their own image. Calvin Miller, a contemporary poet, puts it like this. The more the gods become like men, the easier it is for men to believe the gods. When both have only human appetites, then rogues may worship rogues. And the problem with all this, as God sees, is that having reduced God to a manageable size, humanity is now free to do what they will do without any outside restraint. Having confined God to their own systems, they are now free to live as they please. As the Genesis text says, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be now impossible for them. God recognizes, even if the people do not, that limits are both inescapable because of the nature of God and indispensable because of the nature of humanity. The cosmic irony, though, is that God ultimately did precisely what the people in the plain of Shinar were attempting to do. God did tie himself down, did in fact confine himself to one small spot in Palestine, and did make himself attainable. And as you might expect, it was done on God's terms and in a way that no one expected. God did not just become a bit more human. God became a human. So as we heard from Philippians, though Christ was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And what that means, according to Dorothy Sayers, is this, among other things, that for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and now suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine, Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. So let's bring this all down to earth, our earth, our limitations. What do these two stories have to say to us? What do they mean for me as I seek to understand God and as I try to faithfully follow God. And I want to say that both of these scripture passages are incredibly profound and complex, full of unanswerable questions and possibly unfathomable themes. If I preached for months, I couldn't do them justice. But this is my humble attempt to find a place, my place, in God's story. As I think about the idea of limits, I identify four different kinds of limits 
that emerge from these passages. The first is of an infinite, limitless God who cannot be confined by the feeble attempts of humanity, but who through the incarnation accepted certain self-imposed limits. I'm not going to attempt to plumb that divine mystery this morning, but let's keep it in the picture. And also remember that God has chosen to implement the work of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, through the church, rather than by divine fiat. Then there are the limits that we face by virtue of the fact that we are who we are. Very often we are limited by our own circumstances. We may be confined by mental or physical health issues, by our own circumstances, by our finances, by our obligations to our jobs or to our families, by our skills or by our lack of skills, by the forces of nature, and by the expectations of society. There are the limitations we choose to live simply, to sacrifice for the sake of others, to do without certain forms of technology or a second vehicle, to fast. The spiritual disciplines fall into this category and possibly a topic for yet another sermon. Then there are the limits which are imposed by God and which we may choose to accept or not. The first five books of the Old Testament are largely concerned with laying out the boundaries of what was acceptable behavior and proper worship for God's people. Most of the Old Testament stories have some variation on this theme. God gives the people boundaries. The people transgress those boundaries. God and humanity then live with the results. This last is important because it's easy to think, as we tend to think of the Tower of Babel story, in terms of sin and punishment, of people who screw up and of a God who responds in wrath and judgment. But if we can think in terms of limits that are not only inescapable as part of our humanity, but also indispensable for our ultimate good, and if we can think of a God who has chosen the experience to experience the limitations placed on us, and moreover, has chosen to accept the consequences of our failure to live within those limitations. I believe we are on our way to thinking more profitably about something that, for many of us, is a struggle. How can we live and believe in a God of grace who also imposes laws on his people? How can we reconcile God's love and God's wrath? Do we need to choose between God's righteousness and God's mercy? Can we think in terms of limits that are not only inescapable as part of our humanity, but also indispensable for our ultimate good? Rather than getting tangled in the philosophical and theological issues or morass, let me throw out several analogies I think might be helpful. Judith Rumpelsmucker, in a recent Sunday school class, described working for a graphic designer sorry, working as a graphic designer for a cash-strapped nonprofit organization which shall remain nameless. Budgetary constraints limited her work to two colors rather than four and to just a few font choices compared with the thousands available to us today. Within those constraints, however, 
good and creative work was done. Accepting limitations required greater creativity, but resulted in good and effective results. In the same Sunday school class, Ernie Hess likewise suggested that when we commit ourselves to one person in marriage, we are accepting a set of limitations set forth by God and affirmed by the church. Having accepted those limits, however, we are free to be as creative as we know how to be in a loving relationship with that one person. Or a farmer and a writer, Wendell Berry, who writes, My grandfather lived a life of limits, both suffered and strictly observed, in a world of limits. I learned much of the world from him and from others. And then I changed. I entered the world of labor-saving machines and of limitless cheap fossil fuel. It would take me years of reading, thought, and experience to learn again that in this world, limits are not only inescapable, but indispensable. There are many who hold that Wendell Berry would be a prophet, for he recognized long ago, that it, before it became trendy, that unlimited consumption can only lead to moral and environmental bankruptcy. A true craftsman works within constraint. There is always a constraint of available space. There is always a constraint of available material. Budget, time, what the material can bear, what tools are available, and what they can do. All these things impose constraints on the execution of the craft. But the true craftsman works within constraint. Playing one element against another, respecting the limits of the material and the tools. She respects her customer's wishes and strives to satisfy both those wishes and her own impossibly high standards. And the true craftsman creates works of beauty and utility. And then consider the false craftsman, the imitator, the purveyor of junk. Such a person does not respect the material. He abuses his tools. He demands to work without constraint, demands that no time and budget be denied him, asserts that the customer's expectations pale beside his overwhelming need to express himself or to make money. And very often he makes worthless items of no durability and a beauty, if any, that does not extend beyond the shiny painted surface. And here I think we get close to the heart of the matter. What exactly are we called to express? As creatures divinely imbued with the desire and ability to create, what should we focus on? What should be the object of our creativity? If we are merely expressing ourselves, a lack of restraint, of constraint, is a very helpful thing. If we are creating only for our own fulfillment and pleasure, why should we accept limits? Are we just about self-expression? Are we called to express something much more important than ourselves? I think of a student who turned in a test paper that was covered with intricate doodles, song lyrics, and personal ex expressions for his distaste for geometry. While admiring his talent for self-expression, as his math teacher, I was obligated to give him an F for his failure to express the adequate understanding of geometry. 
Or consider the example from the Bai household. Our children periodically come home with an assignment to compose haiku. This seems to be a fixture in state educational standards for elementary English students. A haiku, as you may know, is a line, a three-line poem, a five-syllable line, sorry, it's a three-line poem with five syllables, then seven, and then five. In fact, it's the shortest of all poetic forms, and it's bound by a vast number of rules, but the 575 rule is the only one that many people pay attention to. One night, we amused ourselves at dinner by conversing solely in haiku. As you can imagine, although, it was creative, it was hardly great art. Let me try a few. There is too much noise. Please turn down the volume now. Mom is going nuts. <laughs> oh good, dessert time. I hope you made something nice. Nope, just canned peaches. <laughs> Beautiful or silly? I understand that haiku is considered to be a very beautiful and profound form of expression in Japan. I confess that I don't find it so. In fact, I find it to be so simplistic as to be sometimes laughable. I suspect that that's because I don't understand the art form. Rather than appreciating and embracing the limits of the craft, I poke fun at them and consider them to be confining for my adequate expression. Which brings me to this question. Do we laugh at the limitations placed on us by God because we don't understand them? Do we dismiss them as just so much legalism or deride them as ridiculous and antiquated, no longer relevant, do we see the rules as the arbitrary decisions of a wrathful God who wants to keep us in our place? Or can we have the grace to accept them as loving boundaries placed on us by an infinitely creative God? Do we rail against the limits placed on us by God because we find them inadequate to express ourselves? Or... Do we see them as divine restraints which provide form and structure as we seek to express something much more important than ourselves? Can we take up the challenge of crafting lives that reflect the glory of the divine creator, living out our small bits of God's eternal story within the will of God and the constraints of our own humanity? Can we, in fact, practice one of the great Christian virtues, humility, as we learn to live and love within the inescapable and indispensable limits placed on us by a God who has shared our humanity and has considered it well worthwhile. Although the Philippians 2 passage says something pretty amazing about God, we must not forget that it begins like this. Your attitude, my attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. May God grant us the grace to walk humbly.